You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to SecondCity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City Live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. So this is a <clears throat> fun conversation. I'm talking to Nathan Furr, who's an associate professor of strategy at Inseed, where he teaches innovation and technology strategy, and his wife, Susanna Harmon Furr, who's an entrepreneur, designer, art historian, and self-described contrarian. <clears throat> they've, got, they've co-written a new book. It's called The Upside of Uncertainty, A Guide to Finding Possibility in the Unknown. Enjoy the pod. <laughs> The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Nathan and Susanna Fur, welcome to the show. Hi, we're happy to be here. I was intrigued to read this book because I can say with actually some certainty that in the last five years, I've learned not only that nothing is certain, but that human beings will go to incredibly wild lengths to tell themselves a story of certainty, no matter how absurd it is. Does that track with you? It totally does. Uh, I mean, the truth is we are so wired by evolution to be afraid of uncertainty. And that made a lot of sense in an era where there wasn't much possibility to leaving your cave and going, you know, there wasn't much to find. But in, in our world today, it's so ironic that we just grasp at certainty so frantically because we forget that all of those things we want, like possibility and change and, and new and transformation, those only come after going through some uncertainty. So it's kind of a weird thing. I'm about to embark on writing my next book with my wife. So that's something awesome. kind of true. Okay, that'd be a good idea. And it's really based on, you know, we've worked our lives in improvisational theater, which, which traffics in these areas. But in the last five years, 
We've also worked with behavioral scientists. Um, and we've also had a lot of change and upset in our own lives. And this seems like where you guys are at, like uh, Susanna, that you've got science, but you also have the stuff you were dealing with in your personal life. And that's what this book is about. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. I, sometimes we almost feel bad when we're being too personal, but then we realize, oh, but we need to hear these stories of we're all in this together. So yes, definitely we draw on the science and then we add a lot of the things that we're wrestling with currently and, and continue to wrestle with. And, and, you know, I should add, I mean, again, I'm, uh, you know, Susanna is actually an incredibly uh, talented person, has a master's degree in art history, but I've kind of, in my life, chosen more of the academic science role, behavioral innovation. But the truth about this is that Susanna is really the one who's good at uncertainty. So <laughs> she's kind of like the the entrepreneur, the innovator, the wise guru. And I'm kind of like, a, I'll be honest, sometimes a little bit more of the nerd of like, well, this is what the research says. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, we, we might be the opposite in my relationship with that. Um, one of the things that you write early in the book is that uncertainty ability appears to be learned. So that's really good news, right? I, I, and I also, I don't think people believe that. <laughs> yeah. Well, so one of my, uh, one of my co-authors is an applied neuroscientist. And so what he studies is how the brain functions, how genes determine our outcomes. And he'll say everything in life is a function of three things, genes, experience, and learning. So we have to confess right away that to some degree, some of what we do is always determined by our genes and our experience, but some part of it is learning. But there's actually a very robust uh, set of uh, research in fields like ambiguity, tolerance, uncertainty, avoidance, resilience, which all highlight that people differ and it's learned, even like across country level, it differs. So not everybody in a country is born like, oh, I'm born, you know, highly capable with a lot of uncertainty ability. So it's very clear it can be learned. What we felt was missing was how. How do I hmm. give me some practical tools to do this? And, and we, you know, we, we've been interviewing innovators for well over a decade, and this project started long ago. And I think because I'm, I struggle, to be honest, with uh, uncertainty, with uh, doing new things, I was just so curious because I saw these innovators, they had to embrace a lot of uncertainty to do any of those new things. And I was, I wonder, how do they do that? And, and then I'd come back and Susanna and I would discuss the interview and she'd have all these like brilliant insights that like a week later were my insights in quotes. And mm -hmm. uh, there was, so, there was a, there was like a, you know, coming to the truth moment where we said, wait a minute, like maybe we should be collaborating on this. But I'll uh, add that uncertainty ability definitely can be learned. But I think what's cool is once you have some tools and there are more than what we talk about in our book, but then you even can feel it in real time like getting easier. So I feel like we now, because we've named these tools, certain things, we'll call each other on stuff and remind each other. And then it's like, oh my gosh, I just did that. And you feel the ability like ramping up. And I feel like that's really something that I could, I can like, I will go to my, I was going to say, go to my grave. Okay. Scratch that. That's weird. I, I really believe, I really believe that it does get better and kind of can go yeah. quickly. Some yeah. things are going to take longer. We're going to keep having that same error, that same like compulsive trying to do the certainty thing. But seriously, I have seen us get better at certain things yeah. like that. Yeah. If, if you'll allow a funny story. So Please. when we were working on this, the pandemic hits and I think we all felt a lot of uncertainty. And for me, 
it was really challenging because a lot of my income is from keynotes and speeches and teaching, all of which was like immediately canceled in total. We had just bought an apartment. I was really freaking out. I was staying up late. I was waking up early. And at some point, Susanna said to me, you know, if you can't apply these tools to help yourself, you don't get to write this book. And it was it was a definitely a challenging and true thing. And I remember waking up the next morning early, my mind just like on fire with, with anxiety uh, over what might happen in this uncertain situation. And then applying one of these tools in that we talk about how to sustain yourself. And again, some of these tools come from psychology, some from strategy, from innovation, but this is more of a psychology tool. And it was basically, rather than thinking about what you have lost or might lose, focus on what you have. And so I was downstairs and I was grinding these coffee beans and I suddenly smelled this rich smell of these beans. And then I noticed the sunlight was coming in slantwise across the kitchen. It was so beautiful. And the thought occurred to me, I could lose it all. I could lose the apartment. I could lose the job. I would still have a beautiful morning sunlight and I would still have this rich mm. smell of these coffee beans. I would still, in fact, even have these people who I love. And it was like, Suddenly, the uncertainty, but it wasn't so bad. So, yeah, it's personal. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think one of the problems is you can know a bunch of stuff, uh, but we're also emotional human beings. And if we don't learn to serve, and I always go back to practice. How do you practice what you're talking about? And I often tell the story of when COVID hit, Second City makes a lot of its money on corporate workshops, and, and we were able to pivot to virtual right away. Um, and one of those early workshops was uh, for a soft drink company. And it was a friend of mine who used to do uh, exec ed at Yale. And she's like, do you have anything on resilience that we can do in this sort of virtual format? And literally I yelled down to my wife. I'm like, do you got, do you got anything? And she had, she created this exercise called wish. And she has everyone get a piece of paper and make three columns. And one column, you write down a wish you have for something that you can't do now that you want to do. And the next column is you write down the emotion you think you'd feel. And the third column, you write down something you can do right now to experience that emotion. Mm-hmm. You know, so mine was sort of like swim in salt water. And I think I feel refreshed and I could put water on my face. I could go for a run. I could work out. And this idea of claiming your agency and, and, and practicing it, right? Like, and that, that's, I mean, you guys talk a lot about this in the book in, in ways of like, write it down. You're like, like, look, look at it this way. T- take a moment. And I think those practices are hugely important because we're all doctors who smoke to a certain extent, right? <laughs> I like that. Well said. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So let's talk about reframing. This is one of my favorite things to talk about uh, because I think it affects every aspect of human life, wh- whether it's in our own relationships or whether it's in, we're trying to sell something to someone. Um, and you say in, in the book, for better or worse, human beings are wired to fear uncertainty. How does reframing help that? Well, uh, let's go a little deeper on framing. So this is actually some uh, Nobel Prize winning research that really sparked the field of uh, behavioral finance, behavioral sciences. And it's this very simple idea that the way we describe something shapes how we think, decide, and act. And the very famous study by Kahneman Tversky was, you know, there's a disease and you're given two treatments, one with a essentially a 5% chance of failure, the other with a 95% chance of success. And lo and behold, everybody picks 95% chance of success. Why? Because they're identical treatments. And the reason is we're, we're wired to be afraid of losses, but gain-seeking. 
So the whole idea behind reframing is if we could reframe uncertainty in terms of the inevitable possibilities it brings, then when we see it as a gain, then we're less afraid, we're less anxious, we're less debilitated by it. And, and, and so this is very, very important because, you know, one of the things I feel like is really important to understand is that we really do believe that uncertainty and possibility are two sides of the same coin. And I would, I would challenge anybody to ask themselves what something I'm really proud of in my life or something that's really important to me. And, and I would say, now think back. Didn't it come after a moment of uncertainty, you know, a career move, a relationship? Like you had to take a risk. Mm-hmm. And, and you have all experienced deep uncertainty. And, and let's acknowledge there are downsides I don't want to downplay, but, but weren't there some possibilities hidden in that? So, so if that's true, how do we reframe all of these things that feel frightening because of the uncertainty is actually maybe the place where we're going to do our best work, live our best lives. It's kind of the gateway to those possibilities. Mm-hmm. You talk about this uh, business school in Denmark um, that teaches students to see themselves as chaos pilots. Um, Susanna, are you a chaos pilot? Oh, totally. And yeah. well, I want to be. I actually, we actually had um, dinner with the the principal. He calls himself of the school um, just last week in Denmark, and I was like, I want to come to your school. But then we were talking about like, well, gosh, you know, just even saying I I want to be a chaos pilot. What would it look like for me? Um, definitely, I. I, I totally believe that that's a reframe. They give that kind of feeling to their students from day one. Like, okay, here you are. You're going to not have all the tools. You're not going to have all the training. You might not even have, even know what you're going to do and just get going. And and their, their curriculum is super cool. It's super open-ended. They Some of their students are frustrated because they want it to be like an MBA, but it's more of a total... Uh, it's, it's, it's morphing all the time. It's depending on who is in the group. And I feel like with uncertainty, when you can just reframe and say, I'm sticking in with this, something awesome can happen, even when it's a bad situation, because what the awesome thing might be is that you'll handle it better than you would have. So we always want to be really clear. Not all uncertainty is awesome possibility. There are devastating things that happen, but when we are tuned to see, okay, this devastating grief stricken thing is happening to me. How do I still uh, linger, surrender, stay in the presence and the grounding of myself so that I can get to the best option afterwards. And I do feel like the tools still help for that. And reframing is one of those things. It's like a light switch for me. You can, if you are swirling in the doom of something, it's going to be really hard to make a, a powerful, helpful, nourishing choice. If- I, it, yeah. I had an interesting exchange on Twitter yesterday because um, we, we recently participated in a paper that just got published with Islet Fishback. Um, and she did a, a few studies and one was at second city with beginning improv uh, students. And half of the group was basically told this is going to be uncomfortable. Uh, so, so expect that. Uh, and the other group wasn't told anything. And the people who were told that stayed longer in, in the situation and reported back like, you know, uh, greater success. And literally Bob Sutton and I had this back and forth. He's a Stanford professor. And he was saying that he has all these brilliant students who come to the D school at Stanford. Many are great, but there's always, there's always at least one who's always getting straight A's and always knows what the teacher wants, who drops out because it's so uncomfortable because they don't want like a right answer. They want your answer. Um, and, and I think that we live in interesting times in which people, 
you know, are very boundary um, focused, which is important and right. Um, but then we have many people who are really afraid of failing or making mistakes or being uncomfortable. And you can't live in this world successfully without navigating discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the way, Bob Sutton is one of my good friends and mentors. I did my PhD in that group with Bob oh, Sutton. Yeah. And Tina Seeley. He's great. I love Tina too. Yeah. Yeah. So, But just to pick up on kind of what you said, you're absolutely right. And see, the dilemma is, let's be honest, many of us are taught in a way, we are not taught the skills to navigate uncertainty. That's like one of the fundamental premises of the book. And I remember Justin Solheim, he's a former CEO of Ben and Jerry's, and he made a comment when he came to visit Stanford. He said, listen, the world's ambiguity and paradox, it's everywhere. For people who like the linear route forward, life is getting harder and harder in any field. And I think what he was just trying to point out is this difference between, you know, the tools we're taught to plan our life and execute it and do all these things. And as you said, like try to create all this certainty in our life and really the tools we probably need for the next era, which is an era of change and and dynamism and, and uncertainty. How do we learn to navigate that really well? That's, that's a, that's uncertainty ability. And, And, you know, I will say one of the things I think is really important if, I, you know, when I think about what do I wish my friends could take away from this book, it's to see any uncertainty that comes in and say, how do I transform that into a possibility? And we, we use this term, this old technology term called transilience, which means like kind of leaping from one state to another. And I think reframing is, is, is like that first step in that leap. I mean, there's other, mm-hmm. many other tools we talk about to help you do that, but to say, rather than uncertainty being something that disables me, how do I turn this into something that makes me stronger, better, wiser, more capable? Yeah. I mean, that the, the little pithy phrase we use in our world is replacing blame with curiosity, mm, which is like not, always, not always easy to do. One of the stories and the individuals you talk about is Buckminster Fuller, who, of course, I, I know a legendary um, everything polymath, right? Uh, but I didn't, recognize, I didn't realize he had really early struggles. Like, yeah. Can you tell us about that? I think you're a better storyteller okay. about that. Okay. So yeah. I know he's talking a lot, yeah, yeah. but he should, he should take this. Sorry. One. Yeah. So I'll cut to the chase. <laughs> you know, one of the things that fascinates me is how many times people we admire when we dig under the surface, we see that they often faced similar struggles to what we did and they were able to find some way to overcome it. And Buckminster Fuller is such a fascinating person because he had such an incredible impact on the world. But what we often don't know is how much failure he had early in his life. You know, he mm-hmm. got kicked out of Harvard a couple times. His his first child uh, died uh, and he blamed it on this drafty old house that, because he didn't have enough money for a better place to live. Founded a company that he got kicked out of. And at one point he's like wandering Chicago without a job, with a child on the way, like basically getting drunk and thinking, how do I drown myself in the lake so at least my family gets the insurance policy? And, and he has this moment of insight that he describes in almost religious terms where he says, he has this idea like, well, wait a minute, what if I just ran an experiment with my life, which is what could one person with no money, no power, nothing do to make the world a better place? And at the very end of his life, when he's written all these books and he's influenced all these people and has all these patents and just amazing, he still said, at my life, he called himself guinea pig bee. He said, my life, there's Mm -hmm. nothing special about it other than that, I just ran this experiment to say, what could I do? 
Wow. Um, we talked about stories earlier and how we tell ourselves stories of the universe that might not be right, uh, but there's an opposite side. And Susanna, you guys have talked to this entrepreneur, Mike Smith, and he talks about paying attention to, quote, the tiny whisper that tells us we can do something incredible. That's beautiful. Talk to us about that, that reframe. Yeah. Um, he's actually a really interesting. He came to our kids' school actually here in Paris and did a, our daughter was so transfixed by his message. She came home and shared it with us. So we kind of became fans of him. Um, he was just, he, he talks about himself as being kind of a dumb punk that didn't, wasn't good at school. He skateboarded around. He, he was in, I don't remember where he grew up, but basically a very, as he calls himself, just average, kind of not, not doing anything good. But he had this realization. He did love skateboarding and he would mm-hmm. see a lot of homeless people. And he was he was saddened by that. And he he once just said, you know what, I'm just going to go ask them what they need. And someone said socks. And he was like, dude, I can help with that. And he started right. collecting socks and it grew into this huge thing where now he has a center with a skateboard ramp and kids come after school projects tons of people fund him he's really really inspiring and he says it wasn't that he had to do something huge or great he just went up and asked the question because he did have this little feeling you know what could i do and i think sometimes people we we get stuck thinking it has to be a huge thing and it starts from it always starts from a small thing but it is important to wait for that tiny whisper i think when we try to do someone else's thing it doesn't really work so our yeah. book, really, we try to help people find the thing that they would be able to unlock and activate is one of the tools. Like, don't try to do someone else's life. Look for the thing by listening into your own self. What's calling to me? What's what's asking me, um, asking of me to to join in the conversation with this, whatever this thing is? And that's when there's going to be a real synergy and a real power. So... Yeah, we have a mutual friend because uh, I was I was emailing back and forth with him. And he's like, oh, I had lunch with them uh, a few weeks ago, which is David Hornick. Um, yeah. it, and I want you to talk about him. I love David. He's been on the podcast, uh, but we didn't go into as much detail on on his dyslexia and, and how that affected him when he was going to law school. Yeah. So, yeah, David is a really interesting person. Uh, he was Again, he, as you mentioned, he has dyslexia, and yet he's managed to go to Harvard Law School to, you know, kind of graduate top of his class to be one of the world's top investors. And so uh, we interviewed David and also Pamela, uh, his uh, partner, and we asked David, you know, so David, you invest in startups, there's a lot of uncertainty there. How do you like, how do you think about how to navigate uncertainty? And he said, well, first off, it's something I know well, because as somebody with dyslexia, the world is different for me. It's all uncertainty. He said, and he said, in addition, going to Harvard Law School, which is all about reading, mm-hmm. is a really dumb thing to do if you have dyslexia. And so he said, I had to learn to play the game differently because if I played somebody else's game, if I play your game, I'm going to lose. So how do I reinvent the game? So it's in my favor. And so, for example, he would just really listen in class to like his professor. And one talked about one professor, he noticed he was really into like the philosophy of law and John Rawls. And, and, and so while his colleagues were all cramming, reading for the test, he just wrote an essay about, you know, philosophy of law and John Rawls and all that. And his, his roommate kind of teases him like, you're an idiot. What are you doing? You're going to fail this class. And then the professor in the final exam, gives an essay, which is basically, you know, assignment, which is basically that question. Mm -hmm. Um, But he kind of has taken that attitude forward in his life. And it's part of, I think, what makes him so successful. And when you talk to him about how to 
well, how do you invest in like really uncertain ventures? He talks about uncertainty and he says, you know, I, I ask entrepreneurs questions until they'll admit that they don't know. And then I want to know how do they respond to not knowing. And rather than just giving up, he looks for people who say, well, yeah, it's true. I, yeah, I don't know that. But, you know, what if we do an analogy to like how this happened in this other industry? What if it went like that? And it's that kind of ability to admit that maybe you don't know, but also to think creatively when it's different than you expected that he's really looking for. And so it's kind of like it's played out in his personal life, but also mm -hmm. in his professional life. There's Can another character. Go ahead. I was Go just going to add to that. I think that's a perfect example of what a chaos pilot is. It's someone who's willing to be like, yeah, I have no idea, but let's go. Let's go for this. And actually something kind of interesting along your more acting uh, genre of things, the guy who is this principal at chaos pilots, he's like, everyone thinks of as like steering the chaos, but he shared with us, he always thought of it as a pilot, like an experiment test, which I thought was so cool. He wasn't um. thinking of it as the pilot. He's like, hey, this is a pilot for something. We don't know how it's going to go, but let's like put it out there. And so I thought that was a very cool, nuanced, it can go both ways. And both are helpful in thinking about what is it, what does it mean to transform chaos into something, you know, because sometimes if you're in the pilot thing of steering, you're going to muscle through or you're going to do certainty stuff. Like this worked before, yeah. go for it. But a pilot is more like you're already in this more experimental zone, which is good. Yeah. That, that's, I had an interesting conversation with my wife about this recently about like, we, we, we both have a quality of, of powering through, which is great sometimes, right? And, and we've given that to our son and it's great for him sometimes, but we're talking to him a lot in the last, cause he graduated, as he says, Zoom Laude, uh, you know, it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's, life is very uncertain for young people right now. And I feel, yes. feel for them um, yes. because you can't power through this. If you, if you will do that, your arms are going to break. So, yeah. but, but, it, but you do have to steer sometimes. So that also becomes this thing of like, when, when do I know, you know, what's my timing? You talked about that earlier that like you leap too early and, and that's not great. You wait too long and that's not great. And so it's, I think it's, it's basically, if you can remain open to anything, open to any opportunity, take some tries, some pilots, Right. Uh, it's almost like the scientific method, like experiment, experiment, experiment. Or my wife likes to talk about tiny bets. What, what tiny bets can I make on this that might produce a, a bigger bet? And I want you to talk about another character who I thought was fascinating in the book. And it's Rob Adams, who is the, eventually the head of city planning for Melbourne. That, this, is, this is maybe my favorite story in the book. That was such a fun experience to meet Rob and yeah. to spend time with him and see how he transformed a city from, you know, really desperate place to like and one of the best cities in the world yeah do you want to tell the story or who should tell that story nathan's see nathan's always going to be the better storyteller because i just like to go bing bong bing like because i want to keep talking but if you want him to talk through how he did it with no budget he needs to be the guy tell us okay so sorry okay so um R rob adams is a, is a is a a gentleman we were able to meet on some of our projects that we've done. I'm working on a couple of different projects. So Rob Adams is a fascinating story. Many of us uh, don't get started on something because we say we don't have the resources or we don't have the things we need, or it's not the ideal situation. I think Rob Adams provides some real inspiration because 
he was a you know kind of recent graduate in urban planning who gets handed this incredibly difficult task, which is the city of Melbourne had been laid out back in the 1800s on this grid system during a gold rush. And then over time, people had built and subdivided these blocks and created all these little side alleys. And, and people had started to move out of the city. And so the city center had become really desperate in terms of a lot of crime, very grimy. Nobody wanted to be there. So he gets hired to say, can you do anything about this? And he has no budget. And so how do you do that? How do you turn around the economic viability and where people live and all that with no budget? And what I love about it is he said, well, what do I have a lot of, an abundance of? I have so much of it that nobody even thinks it's valuable. And one of the things is those little alleyways, they call them laneways in Australia, that had been kind of drilled into these blocks like wormholes that were just for parking and trash and bad things at night. He says, well, I have a lot of those. What if I put up a pylon, blocked it off, and gave the space over to the local restaurants to kind of expand their footprint if they keep it clean and put up some lights? So he runs this little experiment, and lo and behold, people start to congregate where this restaurant is and spend a little more time. And and then what he does is he goes on one after the other, converting these laneways. And so now today, these laneways, which were once a huge liability, are now a tourist attraction. And then uh, something else happened. There had been a lot of overbuilding in uh, in downtown Melbourne, and there was a property crash. So like, it was really bad. And I mean, literally, if you look at photos from the era, the insides of these buildings are like zombie apocalypse, empty mm-hmm. spray paint full of trash. And he says to his team when this happens, we've got it. Who would say that? Like, you're trying to turn around a city, but this is like a terrible recession. But for him, it's now the building has essentially no other use. So he went to one of these older, beautiful buildings that was empty. He went to the owner and said, hey, why don't you give me the building, use of the building? I'm going to renovate it. I'm going to rent it in this mixed use thing that he'd seen in Europe. You know, people actually like to live where there are businesses. You don't have to separate them and put them in the suburbs. So he says, I'm going to run this little experiment. When I've paid back the loan from the rent, I will return the building to you, all improvements included and tenants included. And and the building owner was like, yeah, nobody's going to do that. Australians don't want to live in downtown, but you know, what else can I do? Mm-hmm. So Rob does it, renovates it, and people love it. In fact, he pays it off in half the amount of time expected, turns it back over, and then starts converting one apartment after another. And, and went from having like literally 650 total inhabited apartments in downtown Melbourne when he started to having, you know, 30, 40,000 now. And it's everybody wants to be in the central business district. And, and, and maybe just one last story of what he did. I, one of my favorites is they have all these, he, he slowly took over the roads because they had these big wide roads and he took them over, put in green space, put in places to sit, put in coffee bars and florist shops. And, you know, he'd give the florist shop for free if uh, you just kind of keep an eye on the street and lo and behold, it makes everybody feel safe if there's a florist shop on the corner. Right. But they had all these trees that he planted. And, and so they created a system whereby if there's a problem with a tree, it ha- had a unique idea and you could email the city about the tree. But people started to send the trees love notes and <laughs> say things like, you know, I was walking out of St. Mary's today and I was struck by, not by a limb, but by your beauty. You're such a magnificent tree. You must get these love letters all the time. And it really like drew the community into it. And I think it's just a brilliant example of saying, don't let what you don't have stop you. Just say, what? 
how can I think creatively about what I could do? And maybe it's the very thing that I have so much of that nobody's really valuing it. Yeah. Yeah. In the book, you talk about this need for cognitive flexibility. And I think, would that be the same thing as divergent thinking or, or or close cousins? Well, divergent thinking is about going uh, broad, uh, yep. looking at many options, and then uh, before you converge. And, and cognitive flexibility, I actually did this, my dissertation on this, is more about this idea of how do you change your worldview when new information comes in? Because okay. one of the challenges is, is we get experienced or we get a lot on the line. We tend to do what's called entrench. We get mm-hmm. really committed to our perspective. But really great innovators are able to look at new information and, and, and change their mindset. It, this has also been called uh, an attitude of wisdom. It's you have just enough confidence in, in what you're, you're kind of that whisper is saying to you to move forward, to take action. And you have just enough doubt to like listen to voices, take those voices in context. Again, you know, not every voice is working in your behalf, but then just say, yeah, do I need to update things? Do I need to change things? Um, in a moment, I'm going to ask you each for a yes and story. But before we do that, Susanna, you guys, I work at a comedy theater. And I should note that in the book, you talk about that humor actually can be uh, useful for when you're dealing with uncertainty. How so? Well, I think that it's just that way to kind of let off some steam. One of the people we talked to is a paramedic author filmmaker named Benjamin Gilmore. And he actually talked about gallows humor in the in the paramedic industry that actually they have to lighten such distressing moments sometimes by whether it's the patient or the person who's talking with them often they tend to go into these places where they're all laughing even though it's kind of not funny and i think it's a human a human need but nathan and i will do that we will get each other cracking up even when things we might be crying one second and then there's just it's too much. I think our physically, yeah, we, the toll is just too heavy and someone says something and sometimes it might make you want to punch them, but it can be a, a resetting. Um, yeah. A relief of some kind. We have to keep it not too serious. You know, what you're saying makes me think about a really important principle, which is we're talking about the upside of uncertainty, but we're not advocating that like you should just load tons of uncertainty onto your shoulders. We're advocating that, there's a balance and that uh, for many of us, the problem is we've grabbed so tightly to certainty in our lives that we've eliminated many possibilities. And so there we need to embrace a little bit more, but for others of us, you know, you're just feeling way too much uh, stress from the uncertainty. And so Mm -hmm. how do you bring down the heat that you feel? And so a lot of those tools are, how do I bring down the heat so I can take wise and good action. Mm-hmm. I'd say there's one other element at work here when, when you look at comedy is m- much comedy, m- much of comedy is surprise. So, you mm-hmm. know, like a joke is simply something, you, oh, you expect to go this way, it goes that way. So in, in, in essence, you are sort of practicing that muscle of like, oh, what's it like when it's different? And I'm going to, I mean, I could be afraid of that or I could laugh at that. So I think evolutionarily, that might've been a way where cognitively we can deal with things that are, we turn out not to be threats, and in fact, are kind of funny because it was like, like such not a threat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should have asked you that question. That's a great well, answer. I, I'm, I'm cribbing all this from my wife is a tenured professor of comedy. So okay. she's like, that's, that's where I'm cribbing from. All right. So we always ask our guests uh, to give us a yes and story. Um, and uh, which one of you wants to go first? I'll go first. Yeah. So uh, something that was kind of a cool moment for me was Nathan was doing his PhD at Stanford. We had arrived with three kids, 
people thought we were bonkers because, you know, he was, we were still in school, three kids in like teeny little student housing. We called it like Smokey the Bear. It looked like um, National Park bunk kind of housing for like Mm -hmm. the, the workers, you know, the tour guides or whatever. And um, I had decided Stanford was such a cool environment. I wasn't going to school myself, but I just was feeling the entrepreneurial thing. This is 2004. And I decided, you know what, while Nathan's doing his PhD, I'm going to start a clothing line. And I can do this because I had a little uh, situation. My parents were actually living in Madagascar. It's a long story, but they had met a woman who would do small minimums with me. I was like set to go. I went to New York. Um, I was able to get a cool contact with a a fabric rep from London. I had everything set, went and met this woman. Again, this is coming from a woman who was raised really thinking, I need to be at home with kids. And we had these little kids. Well, basically what happened was I I was pregnant. Talk about Mm -hmm. a surprise. Mm -hmm. I thought it was malaria when I got home. I I had done the shots for Africa. So like I was all panicked because I did the pregnancy test finally because I was so queasy and someone's like maybe you're pregnant I'm like there's no way that's still a miracle weird story about how I was pregnant but mm-hmm. I, I had the worst pregnancy of my life so it was my fourth pregnancy we already were freaks now we have a fourth baby in his first year as, as a PhD student which is going to take six years anyway long story short I get really depressed when I'm when I'm pregnant so I was counting down the days till my pregnancy was going to be over and then I got put on bed rest so it was two months of bed rest kind of torture just feeling like when is our life ever gonna get to something interesting I get to the moment have the baby she's born early she's in the ICU September comes around it's all behind me and I'm like am I gonna start this company again so actually the the question for me was I had this moment my baby's asleep my other kids are at preschool I'd like farmed everybody out for a quiet moment and I looked at myself in a mirror and I asked myself should you go for this clothing line I had started it all and got it going and had to you know had been on hold now for like six months and I know it usually in my life it would have totally been like you've just been slapped down. Like there's no way it's just going to get more chaotic. Nathan's thing is starting to crank more in at people already think you're crazy. How are you going to pull this off and do this clothing line? And I remember looking at myself in the eyes, like, and I was journaling. So I still have this journal and I did like dot, dot, dot. And I was like, I shouldn't do this. And then there was this moment of, yeah, I am going to go back in and I'm going to do it and I'm going to have fun. And I'm going to show my kids, you know, they were, let's see, six, four, and two. And then this newborn there, I'm going to show them what it's like to be like this even crazier mom. Like they're going to grow up with this spunky fun mom. That's going to start this clothing line from a teeny little house. And, you know, my customers ended up being these women who were married to all these like millionaire billionaires. And they'd come to try on clothes at my little house and they'd have to like shimmy past diaper boxes and cribs. But it ended up being such an important phase of my life because I really it was such a moment where I could have just been like, nope, I'm going to wait. I remember thinking, no, I can wait and put this off to like, she goes to kindergarten, but something in me was like, no, you're going to do it. And you're going to like crank it into even fuller gear. And like, Nathan's going to help. He's going to have to come home so you can go up to San Francisco and meet your pattern maker. And it was so cool. I I, I had some chaos, but I piloted mm-hmm. it in both ways. And it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's something that I really, I love that moment because I can remember it. It was so visceral and I have the journal entry. Like no or yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Terrific. I love it. Nathan, what do you have? 
Um, so when I had finished my PhD at Stanford, uh, I entered a phase in, uh, in a professor's career. You, many people have heard the term publish or perish. You got to be really focused or you, know, you perish. And I just started at a new role in a university uh, just after graduation. And I was at a conference in Seattle and there was an old friend there who had done his PhD and we were sitting on the deck of the boat, uh, this boat after the conference, they took all the folks out on this boat to look over the, you know, Seattle, Puget Sound and all that. And uh, we were talking and, and he said to me, he, he was a professor. He had also just gotten a job in France. And he said, what if you came and visited France for a few months and did some teaching, we exchanged some ideas. And, and here's the thing in that critical moment of my career, everybody said, that's such a bad idea. You should stay. You should be focused. You should be doing your research. All my friends said it's a bad idea. My advisor said it's a bad idea. But I was like, how often in your life do you get invited to go hang out in France for three months? Of course, I'm going to say yes. So I said, mm -hmm. yes, and. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we went. And the thing that surprised us, that took, that shocked us was how much it felt like home. Mm. And so we ended up coming back, we visited a few more times, and, and now we live here. Um, but to me, it was this moment of conventional wisdom says you should do X. But man, if an opportunity comes knocking, don't say no. And, never, and, and, and that's become kind of a theme for me. You know, if somebody offers you something, you should probably say yes. And so I've, I went down in January to the south of France to try to get a little bit of sun. We we're freezing up here. It was rainy and cold. And, and a friend says, do you want to go spearfishing? I'm like, it's January. I've got a cold. That sounds crazy. But then I'm like, wait, somebody offers to take you spearfishing in the French Riviera? You say yes. And I would say that's true of most things, even little things. Somebody says, you want to try something? I want to take you to do something new. Say yes. Love it. The book is called The Upside of Uncertainty, A Guide to Finding Possibility in the Unknown. Nathan and Susanna Furr, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks, thanks so for much. having us. So fun. All these connections, Bob Sutton and Dave Hornick. I mean, wow. Yeah, no, some and, great yeah, circles. Tina has been on the podcast as well, and 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 she's a pal. I have a funny story about her. Uh, we were doing my wife and I were doing a um, lecture in Jennifer Ocker's class, and Tina and I wanted to grab a coffee, and so we we're sitting in the whatever the quad is there, and um, she was researching luck. I don't know mm -hmm. if she's still in in that area. Yeah, she wrote a book about it. Okay. Um, uh, oh, I got to grab that. Um, and Anne was, my wife Anne was saying to her, oh, Kelly is actually incredibly lucky at finding parking spots. And Tina said to her, goes, you know, I know Kelly a little bit. Um, I, I think what it is, is that Kelly assumes there's a parking spot for him. So he sees it if it's there. And there are other people who maybe just assume it's not going to be there. And so they miss it. Mm -hmm. I thought that was an interesting observation. That's it it is. Cool. Yeah, her book, she ends up saying, like, you know, of course, serendipity, there's some element that can't be controlled. But the analogy she uses is it's like uh, a sail. It's like wind. It, it blows sometimes. It doesn't blow. And, like, if you raise your sail and you make your sail a little bit bigger, your chances of catching the wind are, are a bit more. So there's actually a lot of overlap. And, and of course, it, there's a exercise in there that we took straight from Tina. And I tell mm -hmm. about Tina, the know your risks. But anyway, yeah. So I'm keeping this all in the pod. 
Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. Oh,